Okay, so we are continuing on with preservation of the saints or perseverance of the saints, which we taught last time. We also covered what apostasy is, the definition of it, <clears throat> the reality of it, and now we're going to apply that to some of these verses that get raised in objection to perseverance of the saints. <coughs> there are three primary passages. We're only covering two tonight. I don't think we necessarily need to do the third one uh, because it's in the same vein as the second one, but it's Galatians 5.4, and I'll read them. Uh, uh, Hebrews 6, 1 through 8, and then Hebrews 10, 26 through 31. But the Hebrews 10, 1 and the Hebrews 6, 1 are basically the same. So the, the, the thing that we're going to explain in these, I think, is going to apply to that one, even though we don't have time to cover it. Um, so we're going to look at those passages that get quoted against perseverance of the saints. And the reason that these passages get cited is because they are indeed talking about apostasy. We do see apostasy in the church. We talked about how that's a reality. This is reality. This is people abandoning the church. Whereas the confession puts it, our confession talks about temporary faith. Those with temporary faith. So if you see uh, chapter 14, I believe, paragraph 3 is of saving faith. And uh, it's speaking of saving faith. And it says, this faith, although it be different in degrees and may be weak or strong, yet it is the... In the least degree, it is of a different, it is, least degree of it, different in kind or nature of it, as in all other saving grace, from the faith and common grace of temporary believers. It's saying it's different in nature and kind than those of temporary believers, that's apostates. It's a different faith. It's not, it's not saving faith. So he says, and there, or the confession says, and therefore, though it may be many times assailed and weakened, yet it gets through the victory, growing up in many to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is both the author and finisher of our faith, which is one of the verses we cited about our faith coming from God is a gift. He's the author and the finisher. If he gives it to you, he's going to see it through. And it's, it's recognizing that even in the church, there's people with weaker faith, stronger faith. Sometimes your faith is assailed more than other times. But if you are a true believer, if you have spirit-wrought faith, it's given by God, it's of a nature or a different kind than those people that have temporary faith, people that fall away, a non-enduring faith, because that is man-made faith. So it's different. Ours is produced by the Holy Spirit, and theirs is a cheap knockoff faith, if we could say it that way. They don't, it does not endure. Those are the ones that leave the church because their faith does not endure. And inevitably, when we speak of apostasy, it obviously sounds like someone losing their salvation. It's going to sound that way. That's inevitable. <clears throat> we'll speak of people that used to be Christians, uh, people that have left the faith, and we're speaking of apostates, and, and sadly, we know such people. But we aren't being technical in the sense of... Oh, I forgot to do the camera. <laughs> uh, we're, not, we're not doing that in the, uh, the technical sense. I'm not saying it in the technical sense of claiming... Um, they really were once born again, they were regenerate, and then they fell away. That's not what we mean when we say that. We simply mean apostasy. They, they're apostate. They, uh, they once claimed faith for themselves, and then they proved themselves to be false Christians or a temporary believer. So while it sounds like, it may sound like we're talking of people losing their salvation, even us, even we who don't even think that's technically possible, we don't mean it literally. Because it is impossible. And this is why it's so important to never lose touch of 1 John 
This is so key to it over and over and over. It's always going to be the case. They went out from us because they weren't really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they were never really of us. Not that they were of us once and then they ceased to be of us. No, they were not of us. They're not the same. It's not the same faith. This is the explanation for all the apostasy verses that sound like someone losing their salvation. They're not. They're showing that they were never really of us. That's what's happening in apostasy. We see that not only in the first verse that we're looking at. That's Galatians 5. First, we'll look at the first four verses. But the entire book of Galatians, really. Paul wrote the book of Galatians because some of the church of Galatia were falling away. They were falling for a false gospel. One that Paul called no real gospel at all. It was a false gospel. He said, I taught you a gospel of grace. And now you're falling for this distorted fake gospel, this other gospel that, it, that people are adding works to. They're saying you have to do something to add to your faith. And then he says, if anybody speaks another gospel other than this gospel of grace, even if it's an angel from heaven, let him be accursed. Anathema, right? Famous words in, in Galatia or Galatians. And the big kerfuffle in Galatia was that some were coming into the church and they were convincing some of the more gullible people that they had to be circumcised still, just as if they were Jews. You can be a Christian, but you still have to be circumcised, just like the old law said. Paul's whole point in the book is that if you add circumcision, or really any work, any work at all, baptism, if you add any work to the gospel, then it's a false gospel. There's works you're supposed to do, but if you add them as a necessity to get saved, that is a false gospel. It's either by grace or it is by works of the law. It cannot be both. Law and gospel can't be mixed in terms of obtaining eternal life. And he explains that is why it is by faith alone. He explains the purpose of the law is to lead us to Christ since we can't keep it. And if we are a lawbreaker, if we try and do it by the law, we break the law, we're a lawbreaker, then you need a savior and you have to, you have to do it by grace. But you can't mix the two. So mixing law back into salvation by adding law to faith is antithetical to salvation by grace alone through faith alone. The law is bondage and slavery because it can't be kept in its totality if it's going to be sa- if it's going to save somebody. It has to be kept in its totality. So sinners can't do it. People that are sinful by nature can't do it. So then, after drawing that contrast, extremely extensively. He begins chapter 5 by saying this, and you'll hear the language that people cling on to. It says, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. This is speaking of bondage of the law. Now Christ has set us free from the law. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery. Speaking of putting yourself back under the law. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, as in if you accept that you need to do this law, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under the obligation to keep the whole law. You don't get to just do part of it. If you say you have to keep one of them, you have to do all of it because it's all law or it's all grace. You can't mix them. So he says you're under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. The obvious point is that if you receive circumcision as if it were necessary 
then you're obligating yourself to the entirety of the law. Therefore, they have fallen from grace. It's the way he says it. They have fallen from grace. Not in the sense of losing their salvation, but in the sense that they've turned from one gospel to another gospel, one that is not one of grace. It's now by law. So they're fallen from the pursuit of it by grace to law. Not like they were saved and now they're not saved. He's talking about the way they're pursuing it. He's contrasting their pursuit of eternal life as either law or grace. To read an entire doctrine of losing one's salvation into that single phrase of falling from grace, you have fallen from grace, that's, that's the epitome of eisegesis. It's reading the meaning into the text. It's not there in the words. It's an assumption about what those words mean. Like, oh, they fell from grace. That means they had grace, they were Christians, they were regenerate, and then they ceased to be. Like That, the, that phrase can't carry that amount of import. It, it doesn't have that much baggage with it. The context is they're, they're ceasing to pursue salvation by grace. They're now obligated to do it by law. So it's one or the other. You can't, you can't do, if you do it by law, then you're away from grace. So this is really nothing more than a description of apostasy. Likewise, the language of being severed from Christ is language of being excluded from the covenant community for those that once identified with it. And this is actually pretty common in the New Testament. You know, we speak about the way that the Jews were cut out. They are severed from the vine, right? Why were they cut out? It's the same reason that Paul is saying those in Galatia would be severed from Christ. They're not living by faith. That's why the Jews were cut off, not living by faith. He's saying if you pursue salvation by the law, you're not living by faith. You're cut out. Romans 9, 31 and 32 says, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. You see, it's either... Works or faith. Works or faith. What are the other? You can't mix them. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. So they didn't, they, they stumbled over Christ. They didn't pursue salvation, righteousness through Christ by an imputed righteousness. They did it by as if it was works of the law. So they're not pursuing it by faith. And that's what he's telling them in Galatia. Like you pick one law, it doesn't matter. You could pick any of them. You pick circumcision, it's wrong. You could pick any other one, it's the same idea. You're still mixing law with grace. You're still adding to faith as necessary. Therefore, you're going away from grace and you're going to works of the law. It's not grace anymore. So the Jews didn't attain righteousness because they pursued it by works. And thus they are cut out of the covenant community. Not all those that are genetically descended from Abraham are Abraham's children. We are Abraham's children by faith. So those in Galatia that start including works as necessary are no longer pursuing righteousness by faith, but as though it were by works. And that's all he's saying. In Romans 11, he uses that same imagery of dead branches being removed from the vine because they've rejected Christ. It's the same idea. They're broken off. They're cut off. That's the, that's the idea. In the, in the Old Covenant, when it, when it talks about making a covenant, it's technically called cutting a covenant. That's the verb that's used, cutting a covenant. And the idea is you break it, you're cut off. You're cut off from the people. You don't get circumcised, you're cut off from the people. You're sent outside the camp. That's the language that is used of, of breaking covenant. So there's people in the covenant community that are cut off that's what we do when someone displays that they're not a believer. We're like, oh, well, you're, you're a temporary believer. You're cut off. You don't have saving faith. 
So these are the folks that go out from us because they're never really of us, and that is why they're cut off. They are severed from us. They're severed from the covenant community. They're no longer part of us because they don't have faith. They never had a real saving faith. So that's what Paul's talking about in Galatians 5, not a losing of salvation. And I would argue that this is the case for Hebrews 6 as well. And we read of more apostasy there. So again, this one's probably... Um, and these verses, like you, you get why people raise this as a question. You get why, like when we first, if you came to believe this after the fact, these are the kind of verses you needed answers to because they, they need to be understood, right? Otherwise, it seems contradictory with everything else that we've taught. So it's understandable that these need to be dealt with. Um, but it is, these are all cases of apostasy. So you, we'll see this in Hebrews 6. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of instruction of washings and laying on of hands, and resurrection of the ju- uh, dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do, if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have had tasted of the heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. There's that language. It sounds like these are saved people, right? Have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those whose sake it is tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it, is yield, if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. So we, we heard that language. And we've preached on this before. So uh, we have a whole sermon on the entire chapter of Hebrews 6, <clears throat> if you're interested. But we covered the same subject in there because it's a big part of it. Now this orthodox position of what I would call orthodoxy of you can't lose your salvation it can be held with a couple variations of understanding of those verses. And I want to acknowledge that. Uh, I've shown my hand. I, I've told you, you know, I, I, I think these are describing real apostates who left the church because they didn't have genuine faith. But I'll make mention at least of another position that has the same conclusion of us as us, that uh, it's not about losing salvation. Uh, genuine Christians not losing salvation, but it still understands verses 4 through 6 a little bit differently than what I'm going to argue. And this alternative position is still within the bounds of orthodoxy, and I think it's got some arguments for it. Um, They don't see the author describing true believers in... or they, they, They do see it as true believers, but not real, more like a hypothetical. So they, they argue the author is speaking hypothetically at what, to what amounts to an impossibility. That being that true Christians might leave the faith that we're genuinely saved. They're, he's saying it in a hypothetical sense. And, and like, you know, if they left, you couldn't even renew them to repentance. That sort of thing. And we agree that it is impossible, but we, I, th- I think there is some disagreement about whether or not it's describing true believers or true people that professed faith, at least. And it does have a, this position has a few things going for it. I think Sproul and Spurgeon both held to this, and that matters. I mean, those guys are heavyweights. Uh, secondly, in verse 9, the author switches to speaking of the faithful, and he makes this comment saying, you know, we are convinced of better things for you, though we are speaking this way. As in, 
it sounds almost like he's referencing, like, I just gave you this, this goofy hypothetical, but we're convinced of uh, things concerning salvation for you. We're convinced of better things. So that might be an indicator that the author has meant what he said hypothetically. It's not necessarily, but it could be. Um, I, don't, I don't mind if anybody has that position. I don't want to deter you from taking that position. I've wavered I, myself in the certainty of it. It's one of those two. I think it's probably what I'm going to argue, obviously, but <clears throat> if other people promoted that position, I, I don't think that's a, a big deal. But I'm going to say that these are real apostates. Paul is, or author of Hebrews, probably Paul, recorded by Luke, most likely. Anyway, he's probably speaking of real apostates. And I would also argue that their description of having once been enlightened, having tasted of the heavenly gift, having been partakers of the Holy Spirit, uh, tasted of the good word, the, these phrases that he uses, I, they are not necessarily only applicable to regenerate people. They're applicable to what you experience if you're part of the church. And we acknowledge there's apostates amongst us in the church as a whole. Not necessarily saying right here, right now. But I'll start by noting three things. The three essential components of faith, saving faith, are in Latin, if you like the Latin terms and the nerdiness of it, notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. That is knowledge, assent, and trust. Now, knowledge is simply knowing the data, right? You know the story. You know what the claim is. We know the argument, and we actually understand how it works. It's just bare knowledge. Not saying it is true, or they agree with it, but okay, I get it. I get your argument. I see what the argument is. Assent is then agreeing that that story of redemption is true. It's a recognition of the reality of the work of Christ truly being saved. Like, okay, I get it. Yes, I agree that it is true. Now, I would go as far to say that this is the type of faith that I had personally before I was saved. I knew it. I could understand it well enough. Not great, but well enough. I assented that it was true but I wouldn't submit to it. I wasn't trusting in Christ. It's likewise the same faith as demons. Demons have this level of faith. They have knowledge. It says that they know God is one and they shudder. They know Jesus is the Messiah. Remember when the demons encountered like, I know who you are. They know he's the son of God. They know Jesus is gonna, what he's going to do. Uh, they know that he was raised from the dead. It's not like they're, they're confused about that. They know full well. And they know that everybody that trusts in him is going to be saved by God. That's why they work so hard against it, because they know how people are saved. But they're missing that one key element of faith that actually makes it salvific. The fiducia, the trust. That is the supernatural, spirit-wrought aspect of faith that actually matters. Right? Like somebody could know that an airplane flies, and they could understand the physics of how there's lift generated by the wings and the jet engines, but they might not have confidence that... The, an airplane, like, I, I get it. I just, I'm not getting on there. I don't trust it. Like, that's a difference, right? They don't have faith in that airplane to fly. Even if they get it and they assent that it, in theory, works. That's the difference between the knowledge and the trust. So trust is the key part, that the, the, what the Spirit actually does in us, right? That's the kind of faith that is authored by God. When he's the author of our faith, it's giving us the trust in Christ. And he finishes that by maintaining that trust in Christ. Our actual reliance on the righteousness of Jesus Christ to earn eternal life and his atonement to earn our forgiveness. That's what we're trusting Jesus for. No one but born-again believers possess all three elements of faith. And all three elements of faith 
must be present if anyone is going to be saved. If trust is lacking from one's faith, it's deficient. It's, it's, it's man-made faith. It will not save. It will prove temporary. Temporary faith, for however long or short it may last, while it is present, while the person has that temporary faith, can look very similar to genuine faith. It can. The key distinctive is that true faith endures to the end. Therefore, it's impossible to describe an apostate as having it is possible, sorry, it is possible to describe an apostate as having once been enlightened. They do have the knowledge and the assent part. They have it. They might not maintain that part, but they, they have that part. The term enlightened certainly describes the period when someone comes to knowledge of the gospel itself. But it's not so precise as to tell us that it is someone who has saving faith in addition to that knowledge. They can be enlightened as to the reality of it. Not necessarily saying they agree or, or, or submit to it, but they, they can hear of it and know it. It's not a technical term. In fact, I would argue there has to be some degree of enlightenment for apostasy to even be possible anyway, right? Because they have to know what they're rejecting. They have to leave the church for a reason like, I'm not going along with that anymore. Not going along with what? I don't know, whatever that church believes. You can't apostatize from something you don't even necessarily know. You have to know it, be enlightened to it, in order to apostatize from it. We see in Numbers 24, Balaam is described twice as the man whose eyes is opened. Whose eye is opened. And having his eyes uncovered, he was enlightened to the truth and the power of God. This is Balaam. I mean, he's a terrible guy. In the end, his oracles are even recorded for us. He's sort of used as a, a puppet at that point by God, but he's clearly, he has the knowledge and experience of God, and yet he stands as one of the, these examples in Scripture of a horribly wicked man. He, it was his idea to get the women with, uh, get the Israelites tempted into idolatry using the women of these foreign nations. That was his idea. The phrasing of tasting of the heavenly gifts is likewise imprecise in terms of it only being applicable to real believers. It's not so precise that, oh, you can only say that of real believers. No. Apostates, before abandoning the church, will freely take of the Lord's Supper. They'll, they'll taste of that heavenly gift. Though likewise, the, the unbelieving Jews in the wilderness, right? They were, in the wilderness, there's a bunch of unbelieving Jews, and they still got heavenly manna. They tasted, literally, they fed the entire congregation on that heavenly gift. The just and the unjust alike fed themselves. So tasting of the heavenly gift is figurative language describing the benefit that comes from belonging to the blessed community, the, the covenant community. It's Israel in the old and church in the new. So you can be part of the church and taste of the heavenly gift. One phrase less obviously meant in a general sense is having been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. That one, that's probably a little bit more hard-hitting, right? But I do believe it's legitimate to see this as simply being associated in some way, partnering in some fashion, partaking in that sense. They were baptized members in good standing of the church. Maybe they partook of the Holy Spirit by coming under conviction of sin. Perhaps early church apostates even had a demon cast out of them before they came into the church. Or they prayed with the entire church for someone's salvation or a multiplicity of other 
similar prayers that are routinely answered by the Holy Spirit. And they're made partakers in the sense that they're with the corporate body, watching the Holy Spirit work, seeing the Holy Spirit work, and they're partakers in that sense. Not like he's indwelling them. That doesn't mean, being made a partaker of the Holy Spirit does not mean the Holy Spirit is indwelling that person. We don't see that language mixed up. So these apostates, during their temporary time in the church, would have regularly heard preaching and witnessed miracles and even apostolic sign gifts that were still present before the completion of special revelation. They would have seen all that, witnessed it firsthand. And that being the case, it would be, of course, fair to say that they had indeed tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, as the writer of Hebrews says in verse 5. We could say they had tasted the good word of God. They sat under its preaching. And the powers of the age to come, they witnessed it. These, these people are witnesses in the church because they're members in good standing before they apostatize. So there's nothing that is so precise in these words like tasted and enlightened and things like that that tell us whether the person is genuinely saved or not. It is saying they're part of the church. They're witnesses and all that. But it's not technical language. It's merely descriptive of their experience in the church. The phrases are inconclusive in and of themselves because they can describe the experience of both true believers and false professors in the church. And we should not be surprised at all that these phrases sound like they're describing genuine believers because it is true of genuine believers too. That's the whole point. That's why apostasy is so grievous. That's why it's such a serious thing. It doesn't take many years of being a believer, sadly, before you start to see apostasy. You see it at the local level in the church. You see it on the popular level. You hear about popular level Christians that fall away. And every time we rightfully mourn and review what we know about that person's spiritual walk, right? We remember the apparent evidence that convinced us of their sincerity. You know, why did they, why did so-and-so stop believing? You know, how can this be? I knew him for so many years. He, maybe he was a deacon in the church. He's, he served at the food bank. I saw him visiting widows. I saw him donate money and time. And he was such a kind man. And he gave faithfully to the church. Uh, he sat under faithful preaching. He wrote a book. He wrote a book. He, his, his sermons were so popular. Maybe they taught Sunday school. Maybe they taught Sunday school really well. Such a good teacher. He's part of the community. You know, he saw the love and the repentance and the forgiveness and the fellowship that went on in the church and that, that he personally received from us. It seems crazy. How could that person fall away? Or, or we might say, he was enlightened. He tasted of the heavenly gift. He partook in the Holy Spirit. He tasted the good word and the powers of the age to come. How could he do that? That's what's happening. The point of those descriptions is the apostates were fully immersed in the experience of the word and the miracles and the whole practice of the church. They knew the truth of the gospel. They had enjoyed the blessings of the church. They, participate, they participated in the ecclesiastical activities and the Holy Spirit working in and amongst us. They knew the truth of the gospel they had enjoyed the blessings of the church. They had participated in all that. These are the kinds of collateral benefits, if I could call them that. Collateral benefits that come from being associated with God's people. And thus, some people profess faith. They join us for a time, and then they depart the church when their faith 
inevitably fails because fake faith always fails. It's not authored by God and it's not going to be finished by God because he didn't give it to them, so he's not going to finish it in them. Fake faith fails. Their nominal Christianity crumbles, especially in the storms of life, especially when things get hard. The lies of the devil and the temptations of the world make them fall away. Everyone in the New Covenant professes faith and participates in, the, in New Covenant worship, but not everyone who professes the faith and participates in New Covenant worship is actually in the New Covenant. They're, they're, inst- they're innocent amongst us, and we, we, hopefully those two things align as much as possible, but just because you're in the church doesn't mean you're part of the church. You, have to only, you can only be in by faith, and it's an invisible thing. So we make our best guess based on professed uh, faith, credible professions of faith, but it's not a guarantee. We're not deciding any of it. We can't. Think again about the unbelieving Jews in the wilderness who had been enlightened, right? The firstborn sons were saved when they put the blood on the doorposts during Passover, the first Passover. They saw their sons saved and they saw all the Egyptian sons killed. They saw the plagues brought on in Egypt. They witnessed the utter humiliation of all of Egypt's gods, the powerlessness of Pharaoh, who himself was considered deity, to stop the plans of the one true God. They saw all those plagues. They were fed by that bread that supernaturally appeared repeatedly. They saw the splitting of the Red Sea. They literally tasted of the heavenly gift every single day for 40 years. The Jews knew, the Jews even in the wilderness knew without a shadow of a doubt that Yahweh was real. There was no doubt. They were led by the pillar of fire and the cloud during the day. They witnessed so much that his promises were true. Over and over. They were partakers of the Holy Spirit as he revealed the Ten Commandments to Moses. They heard the prophecies revealed by the Spirit to them. They saw Moses' face glowing after he came out from being in the presence of God. They saw their own people filled with the spirit of craftsmanship to make the elements of the first tabernacle in the wilderness, right? God gave them these supernatural gifts to build it. Yet, they were not all Israel just because they were descended from Israel. Some of them revealed themselves to have false faith. And thus, they died in the wilderness and they never entered the promised land. Hebrews 3 says they, they could not enter because of unbelief, a lack of faith. They did not have faith in the promises. They had the knowledge. They knew God was real. They had the assent. Yes, we agree. That is Yahweh. He is real. But when he says, go in and take that land, I will be with you and you'll conquer these giant people. And they're like, nope, they're too big and scary. We can't do it. It's just like, what? Fake faith. Fake faith fails. But they were partakers and they were enlightened. We can likewise think of those described by Christ in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So these people are partakers in the church. Do you think those descriptions in in Hebrews 6 could apply to them? Partakers of the Holy Spirit, enlightened? Tasting of the good word of God? I certainly do. They participated. They shared outwardly in the benefit of the covenant community. But what's he say to them? He says, I never knew you. 
Not that he knew them once and then they departed and chose to go away from them. He says, no, I never knew you. There wasn't a time that I knew you. That's a big deal. Not, I knew you and you left and now I don't know you. I never knew you. They weren't known by God because they weren't saved and they were never known by him. Fake faith doesn't save and it shows itself to be fake, not necessarily by the quality of it because it can look very real. And sometimes real faith can look kind of weak. But it shows itself to be fake by its lack of endurance. So even though those phrases in verses 4 through 6 in Hebrews chapter 6, they may appear at first glance to refer to true believers, it's really only referring to professing believers who are not necessarily saved. One other way we can be convinced of this understanding is by looking at the many qualities that are undisputably applied to the true believers in the book of Hebrews. So people want to take those phrases and they say, this can only describe a true believer. It's like, no, no, those can describe anyone in the church. Let's look at what Hebrews does say undoubtedly about true believers. And I'll say I'm, I'm indebted to Wayne Grudem here in a book called Still Sovereign. He has a chapter on this. But listen to how the author of Hebrews describes true Christians, the genuine Christians, He says they have had their sins forgiven by God, having their conscience cleansed by God. God has written the law on their hearts. God is producing holiness in them. God has given them an unshakable kingdom. God is pleased with them. They have faith, have hope, have love, worship and pray, obey God, persevere, enter God's rest, know God, are God's house, his children, his people, they share in Christ, will receive future salvation. That's how Hebrews speaks of genuine believers. It's distinctly different, distinctly more precise. What we read in verses 4 through 6 is not talking about who these people were that fell away. It's talking about what they experienced. Not who they were, but what they experienced. And everything that we see that they experienced is present in the church. It's present in the church. It's possible to be tied up with a community, filled up with the Spirit, even if an individual himself is not filled with the Spirit. Think Judas. Judas didn't lose his salvation. He was the son of perdition. He was destined to it, as Jesus said. But he seemed legit. His faith seemed legit. That None of the apostles knew. When Jesus says, someone's going to betray me, they're like, is it me? Nobody was like, I bet it's Judas. Did they all be like, oh, we all know who it's going to be? They're all like, oh, it could be me. It could be me. It's not like Judas made it obvious that he's the son of perdition. His faith looked real, but he was never known by God. This text then is warning us for us to persevere in the faith. It's a warning passage for us to persevere. And there's lots of warnings in Hebrews, in fact. There's lots of them. Warnings that are used by God as a means to cause his saints to persevere. And that's an important thing, because people think, well, if there's a warning, then it's a possibility. No, if it's a warning, it's a means. Just like any warning is given as a means to protect. Think of a a danger label, right? Think of a high-voltage label on electrical lines. That is there to prevent someone from touching them, so that people that are smart and know how to read are like, I don't want to be electrocuted, therefore I won't touch that. It serves as a means to prevent them from being touched. 
It serves as a means to save lives. The only difference is that God's warnings are a means of grace, and God's grace is effectual for his sheep. So Hebrews 6, along with other warning passages throughout Hebrews, serve as the very means by which God keeps his saints from stumbling and falling away. That's one of the things he does. He gives warnings in Scripture because where do believers look for guidance? Scripture. If he gives us warnings, it's like, okay, that's a thing I should be warned about and careful because that's God's word to us. We know that. Our obedience to the command to persevere is still dependent on grace, but that grace has been promised to us. It's like there's a, if there's a child, if you're with your child near a cliff, you know, a diligent parent's going to say, hey, don't go too close to that cliff. You could fall off and die. You know, if you go over that edge, you're going to die. Well, the purpose of saying that, warning that child, is to keep that child from getting near the cliff and falling off. But are we going to let the child get near the cliff? No. <laughs> a parent's going to be like, eh, yeah, I'm keeping you close. Then we're not going to let them get near the cliff. We're going to hold them back. Or as Jesus tells us, or uh, as Scripture tells us, he's able to keep us from stumbling. Jude 1.24, right? The warning passage about staying faithful serve the same pur- purpose as the parents' warning. They're there as descriptions that are used as means, but they're not prescriptive as if it's going to happen. Now, immediately following that warning in verses 4 through 6, we have this clarifying analogy in verses four, uh, 7 and 8. It says, For the ground drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also Tilled receives a blessing from God, but if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. So there's two types of land described here. Both receive the rain. Both types of land. One produces vegetation, one's being tilled and produces vegetation, and thus they receive God's blessing. The other produces thorns and thistles, and it says it's close to being cursed by God and burned. So we see that in the church, both true and false believers, false believers are just future apostates, they're both exposed to the things of God. They both receive the rain. As we preach it, the the word goes out and it goes into their ears and it hits their heart, but there's different kinds of hearts. A a believing heart is going to receive the word as God's word and adhere to it, seek after it, worship God for it, seek to conform to it. A hard heart is going to bounce off. So the difference is not, they're they're experiencing the same thing, but they have different hearts. And that's what that analogy points out. True believers have the fruit of the Spirit produced in them, and false believers produce weeds, thorns and thistles, and eventually apostasy. They produce apostasy. The quality of the land is revealed in what is produced when the rain falls on it. The fruitless land was not formerly fruitful, It is land that yields worthless weeds. Fake faith will produce apostasy. It's going to reveal itself. Or as John said, as we keep saying over and over, they will go out from us to show that they were not of us. They were never really of us. The bad land will produce the thorns and thistles to show they were never really of us, never really useful land. So the author's analogy there is helpful in confirming that interpretation, I think. What I do think is the hardest question, I'll try to get through this. this, we'll finish with this. The hardest question to answer in this text is if it means that no apostates can ever repent and be saved. I think that's the hardest part of this whole, this whole section. It says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. 
And this is a very difficult question. But the passage indicates that at least some apostasy is so severe that in renouncing Christ, that there is no salvation left for those that commit it. Remember that the audience here is Jews, but it's a mixed, it's believers and unbelievers, or, or uh, it's a mixed congregation. It's Jews, and the apostates here would be returning to Judaism that rejects Jesus as the Christ, the Christ that they had acknowledged and had been waiting for. And they'd be then reverting back to a position that justified the murder of Christ. Ultimately, if they're denying he is the Christ, they're saying, yeah, he should have been killed as an apost- a false, a blasphemer, someone claiming to be God. They would necessarily be saying that Jesus was a liar who co-opted and corrupted the faith rather than fulfilled it. And our author describes that as crucifying once again the Son of God because it would treat him with utter contempt and rejection like what he experienced at the crucifixion. This is why apostates are subject to more severe judgment. They've received an enormous amount of external blessing. The severity of their apostasy is because they have a consciousness of the gospel and extensive experience in the church and witnessing even the supernatural. That makes their apostasy all the graver, all the more severe. And they still, they reject everything about what they had once seen and witnessed and been enlightened to have, tasted, all of that. Everything they'd heard. Now, I don't think that all apostasy is equal, necessarily. I don't think that every single person that departs from the church does so permanently or who has experienced everything that's described in verses 4 through 6, you know. I don't think we can say that of every apostate, that they've, they've experienced all of those same things. Their experiences can be a little bit different. But there seems to be an apostasy that is so severe because of their previous knowledge, as described in verses 4 through 6, that that person is then so hardened so as to never be renewed to repentance. Essentially, they're, they're turned over to their sin by God forever. It's analogous to the unpardonable sin. You know, the Pharisees knew Jesus was performing these miracles by the Holy Spirit, but they're so opposed to him that they still rejected him as the Christ. And in spite of what they knew to be true, they accused him of doing it by the power of the devil instead of the power of God. And that's the level of apostasy being described. These people have been enlightened. They know. They saw the real work of the Holy Spirit. And yet they still apostatize. They know better. And yet something draws them out. And those are the ones that will not return to the church. Their hardening is seemingly permanent. Now, this doesn't change our approach toward them, right? We, can't, we don't get to judge of like, well, this one had such an intense experience that there's no way they could be renewed to experience. But it doesn't change our approach to them. You know, we don't, we don't know which apostates are so hardened. We don't need to. We don't need to know. It's just like the doctrine of unconditional election, right? We don't know which ones have been elected. So we don't change how we evangelize people as if we're trying to figure out, well, are they elected or not? Just like with apostates, we don't cease to evangelize them just like, well, what was your apostasy like? That doesn't matter. You know, we evangelize all. Put it all out there. So the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints doesn't stop our warnings to believers. We don't know who's faking it. We just issue those warnings that God gives us. And while we're on the subject, I'll also say this. Has anyone ever met an Arminian that has applied this text consistently? Meaning that they 
they think that if you leave the church, you apostatize. That's what Hebrews 6 is talking about. These are once believers. And then it says they could never be renewed to repentance. Have you ever met an Arminian that's avoided evangelizing an apostate, someone that left the faith because they think they've fallen away, as Hebrews 6 says, and they can't be saved? Because I haven't. I've never met anyone that will say that. I've met people that say Hebrews 6 is about losing your salvation, but they won't say don't evangelize those people because they're not doing it consistently. If they were being consistent, they should treat every single formerly professing Christian as completely irredeemable, which they don't, which is good. I'm glad they are inconsistent on that. Um, Hebrews 10, we're not going to go through it, but it's, it's, it's different language, but the same idea about uh, basically trampling underfoot the blood of Christ. It's the, the idea of just making a mockery of the crucifixion of people that once claimed the name of Christ. So we're not going to go through it again or, or repeat these same ideas, but uh, what we see in Hebrews 10 is the same thing we're seeing in Hebrews 6, I think. Um, but we don't really have time for that anyway. Any questions about any of that? Did it, was it? That's a lot, I know, in Hebrews 6, but any questions about anything that we've covered? Yep. I've always connected Hebrews 6 with the end of Hebrews 5 there where it's talking about them meeting once again uh, somebody teaching the elementary principles of the oracles of God. So they, they've been enlightened there. You have come to the middle, which they are needing it again. So obviously they've tasted of the heavenly gifts at that point and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk partakers of the um, Spirit. It's not accustomed to the word of righteousness where he's the infant, but solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have had their senses trained to discern good and evil. And then he launches into that warning passage in, in chapter 6. And so it's almost like this person in verses 4 through uh, 9 there, or the 8, are, it's, it's the slugger of Proverbs who dips his hand in the dish and refuses to bring it to his mouth. Yeah. It's someone so immature and, and uh, the slugger in the faith who refuses to, to move on to that solid milk. There's your threat right there. Uh, the horns and thistles uh, of the world will come and choke out whatever has sprouted. Yeah. You are not pursuing that maturity in the faith. Yeah. I agree. Oh, yep. The book you referenced, it was called Still Sovereign. Yeah, it, it, I think it's uh, multiple authors, and there's a bunch of different chapters written by different authors. Uh, I think the one chapter that is on the Hebrews warning passages, I think is written by Wayne Grudem, but he might also be the editor. But it's called Still Sovereign. I've got a copy of it uh, that I can bring you to. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, the, the question or the, the request was to 
the, speak on the interaction between perseverance of the saints and basically our, our sanctification and our striving, how we, how we put in effort, more or less. Actually, me and Sherry, I had a conversation this week about this very thing. Um, a lot of people take the promises of like, oh, you think these promises are true, therefore, you can just be passive, you don't have to do anything, yada, yada, yada. It's like, what? If I love to lift heavy objects and somebody said, I'm going to make you stronger, would I be like, well, now that I'm stronger, I don't have to lift, lift heavy objects? Or, because I love to lift heavy objects, will I take that strength and start lifting more heavy objects? That's kind of the idea. God's like, I'm going to make you spiritually stronger, and you're going to enjoy doing these spiritually strong things. So go do spiritually strong things. And as we're made ho- more holy, more spiritually strong, we go exercise our spiritual strength. We actually use it. Um, God says, do it because I do it in you. Philippians 2 or 3, uh, verses 12 through 13. I always forget. Where's it 4? One of those. It's in Philippians 2, 3, or 4. I always forget the chapter, but I know it's um, like 11 through 13. Uh, work out your salvation. Make your calling and election sure, he even says. Make it sure. Put it on display and, and be all the more confident of it because you're going to do these things that I'm doing within you. And just like he says to his disciples, go prove to be my disciples. Go do. The Spirit's going to be working in you. I'm going to send him to do this work in you. Now go do it. And the truth is you're going to enjoy it. The joy of the Lord is your strength. Rejoice always. You're going to enjoy doing the things of God and being used for his kingdom because you know this is the thing that matters more than anything else in the entire world. This is the reality that exists for eternity and not just this temporary reality in the world where fame or money and your job and whatever suffering or hardship you're going through, like that's all temporary. When you know that you're working on the, the things of eternity, then you actually enjoy those things. Not that you can't enjoy the others, but... It makes them incredibly enjoyable to know the one true God and to be used by the one true God. I mean, even the, the, the disciples that are beaten in Acts go away rejoicing for being counted worthy. Like, they're using their faith. They're putting their faith into action. Like, okay, you profess this faith. You're going to get beaten. Like, yep, I'll do it anyway, and I'm going to rejoice over it in spite of that. Like, they, they take up their faith and they use it and take a beating for it and rejoice anyway. So, uh, the, the striving is the joy. It is what you do as a believer. It's not, it's not like we're looking for an excuse to not have to work or not have to do good deeds or not have to obey. That's our worldly flesh and our, our, that kind of thinking is like, that's not how Christians operate. We're not looking to do the least amount possible. As if like, you just have to be this holy and I'll get right there and then I'll stop. <laughs> so, hopefully that's helpful. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. I mean, a, a husband or a wife is not going to be like, well, she can't leave me now, therefore I'm going to do the least amount possible. Or I'll do just enough for her not to get mad and then I'll stop. No, that's, that's not love. That's not Christian love. We, the love of God is overabundant, flowing over. And we don't say not to try or not to strive. We put in effort. We're just not the ones changing our hearts. We're just using the change that has been wrought in our hearts. 
and we put it on display. He, he puts holiness in us so that we can put holiness into the world physically because the spiritual gets worked out through the connection of body and soul to us. He changes our soul so that we can exercise the, the holiness wrought in our soul physically because the soul is not a spiritual thing, but we're body and soul, so we do those things physically in the world. You know, um, who was it that said, was it Luther that said, God doesn't need your good deeds, but your neighbor does? I think, that, is that Luther? I can't remember. But the idea being, um, like, we do them to worship God, yes, and we do it in obedience to God, but he also loves others through us. So we, if we get to be the, the hands and feet of Jesus, we get to be Christ to others, then that is a huge blessing. And only a regenerate person is going to look at that as a privilege. So we do it because it is a privilege and it is enjoyable. And I mean, it's pretty, anybody that helps others and um, gets the opportunity to serve. I think of just the other day when we moved to Maryland, uh, we had way more people than we needed. But, but everybody was so eager to do it. I'm like, that's exactly, that's Christian love right there. Like, is there an opportunity? Let's do it. I want to, I want to help. I want to serve. We don't have a lot of widows. We don't have a lot of old folks yet. We, we want more. Um, but the eagerness to serve there was a really cool thing, I thought. And we, we got all that work done so quickly because there's so many of us. We almost had to, like, wait our turn to move something. Um, but nobody's going to be like, oh, I don't have to do this because I'm a Christian. I can't lose my salvation. I don't have to do any service. No, we're eager to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, monergism, the fact that we believe God alone works salvation, doesn't mean sit back and do nothing. It never has, and that's a false implication if anybody makes that claim about us. It's just like when they say that about grace. Well, if grace is that good, well, maybe we should just continue in sin that grace may abound. It's like, okay, you understand what I'm saying about grace, you just don't understand the implications of grace. Like, yeah, grace is that good, and grace is amazing, but grace doesn't make you want to continue in sin. Anything else before we close? <clears throat> All right, when we're done, I'll pray quick and we'll sing a song, but if we want, we could uh, fold up the chairs and put them in the trailer. The long white tables go in the men's bathroom, and then these short gray tables uh, go right here in this breezeway. Um, you'll see one short one in there. We'll keep the short ones in that breezeway. The long ones are going to go to the men's bathroom, and then we'll just keep that open uh, don't, you don't need to set these chairs out. We're going to leave that open for the, the sweeping. So uh, if you're able to help with that, it would be great, but don't feel obligated. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that you do include us in your plan of salvation and that we don't just sit back as passive, um, passive people doing nothing, sitting on the couch doing nothing while you work salvation. Rather, you work salvation, you assure us of its guarantee, and you assure us of what you've promised to do, but then we get to be included in its activity. And we get to be blessed with that activity. We get a little taste of heaven as we participate with God's people and in the covenant community, seeing the blessing that comes across all sort of 
age and um, demographic lines, uh, these differences in people that are bridged by Christ and that we have this unity and joy together because of a common Savior and a common gospel. So thank you for giving us promises that our faith will not fail because you have worked it in us. Thank you for including us in your plan. Protect those in this church from apostasy, Lord. We pray that you would use the warnings in Scripture to protect all of us from uh, toying around with evil or getting too close to the edge of the cliff or, or being neglectful in our pursuit of holiness, Lord. Use those warnings to keep us close to you. Help us to take them seriously, just like we give the warning in the Lord's Supper each week, Lord. I pray we take all your warnings in Scripture seriously and that we would cling all the tighter to Christ. We give thanks to you for the joy of our salvation, for the reality of our salvation, and for you knowing us. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.